on? Can you guys hear me? Okay. Let me make sure this is on. Okay. Just give me a second to get set up here. How's everybody doing today? Enjoying this beautiful weather? Yeah, we had a fire pit last night. It was nice. Okay, if, if today seems a little off-kilter to you, uh, there's probably a reason for that. One, uh, there's not a study sheet, so I apologize for that if you're one of those people that like study sheets. Um, there's not one for a lot of reasons, and um, so again, I apologize for there not being one. Hopefully you have something to take notes on. The other one is that you're probably not used to seeing me up here on the first Sunday of the month. That's usually Kent's spot, and Kent is preparing for a pastor's conference in Haiti, in November, and so I'm filling in for him, and so that's why it might be a little, a little off. Okay, let's get going. Okay, voices from the cloud. Um, I like that picture, and and hopefully you'll you'll see why in a little bit. Uh, back in 2007, I ran a half marathon uh, in Cologne, Germany, and. Um, for some of you guys that are runners, that may not seem like a big deal. A half marathon is 20, 21 kilometers, 13.1 miles. And that was a big deal for me back then because I was used to running in the military, but I was used to running shorter distances. So one miles, three miles, five miles to get ready for my PT test. And uh, I was half the man back then that I am now. And so uh, it was a big deal then, and it would be miraculous for me to be able to run that now. Uh, but anyway, we ran the, the marathon, and it, as I said, is in Cologne, Germany. And that's the cathedral in Cologne. And that really doesn't give you a sense of the scale of it. It's just this massive, massive Gothic cathedral. It's just beautiful. And the course wound through some of the old parts of the city and some of the new parts of the city. Um, and then... Oops, did I not have another picture? Okay, and then we ended up uh, running through that square down to the river, to the Mosul River, and that's where the marathon ended. And all along the route, there were people on the sidelines, and they were encouraging us. At least I think they were. They were, they were in German, so I'm assuming that they were encouraging us. Maybe they weren't. Um, but they were encouraging us, and so... When I was running, that's what really kept me going. So at the, at the five-mile mark, at the eight-mile mark, when I, had, when I had, was running further than I had run before, it was really the crowd and their energy that kept me moving. And so we would run through different areas, and people would be hanging out their apartment windows and, and playing loudspeakers with music, or we'd, we'd come along, and there would be a... Um, uh, kind of like a high school band, and they'd be playing, and, and so you'd run and step with the tempo, and it was just, it was a lot of fun. But it was really those times when I wanted to quit, or when I was like, this hurts, or this is hard, or I haven't run this far, or why did I let people talk me into doing this? It was really the crowd and uh, that kept me going. And so the scripture that we're going to look at today is kind of like that. And, and I'm sure you guys have experienced something similar. So maybe you've either been in, a, in an athletic event where you've run, or maybe you've been part of that crowd where you're the one that's cheering people on. And so we're going to look at um, 
Our scripture is going to be based on Hebrews 12. Okay. And um, Hebrews 12 talks about a cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. And so because that cloud of witnesses surrounds us, we can run our race uh, when we're focused on Christ. And in order to understand a little bit of Hebrews 12, we need to understand Hebrews, look at Hebrews 11 uh, just briefly. Hebrews 11, I'm not sure what page it is if you're using the Pew Bible, but it probably has um, the heading is either by faith or maybe some of them say the Hall of Faith. It's commonly known as that. And it is just a list of people in the Bible. So there uh, is Moses and um, David and um, Abraham. Thank you. Yeah, one of the main ones. See, encouragement. Thanks for object lesson. So it lists all these people who were looking forward to the day of Christ. And by faith they did this. By faith they did this. By faith they did this. And none of them saw the day of Christ, but they were all looking forward to it in faith. And so we come to Hebrews chapter 12. And this is what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Now Webster's Dictionary defines a witness as a person who sees something happen And in the context of a court of law, it's a person who makes a statement in a court about what he or she knows or has seen. And another usage is a person who is present at an event and can say that it happened. And so the idea here in Hebrews 12 and what I want to talk about today is that we can look at the lives of saints who have gone before us and we can look at how they lived their lives. We can look at how they loved God and we gain encouragement for our race that we're running. So we're going to look at some witnesses. We're going to look at one that is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, and then we're going to look at three extra-biblical witnesses who have had a great impact on the church. And Okay. And the first person we're going to look at is David. That's the family-friendly version of the statue of David. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll, you'll just have to Google it when you get home. Okay. So David is, uh, the, you know, the Bible is full of fascinating characters, right? But David is in the top five for sure. Um, David, if you're not familiar with the story of David, David is a shepherd, was a shepherd from the city of Bethlehem. And he was anointed king by Samuel while there was still a king. So Saul was still king. God had determined that he was going to remove Saul, but... Samuel goes, and that's a great story in itself, goes and anoints uh, David. Well, David was just a little boy. Uh, David eventually becomes king after Saul is killed by the Philistines in battle. Uh, David and his sons, or I'm sorry, Saul and his sons are killed by the Philistines, and David becomes king. And one of the fascinating things to me about David is David is just this mass of contrast and contradictions, right? Right? And so I think that's why I can relate to him. 
So it's not like, you know, James says that Elijah was a man just like us. But if you look in the scripture, you know, Elijah is calling down fire from heaven and he is outrunning chariots and he's raising people from the dead. And that's just not very relatable to me, right? Because I've never called down fire and I don't know anybody that's called down fire. But, but David is relatable because he's just this, this mass of contradictions. Uh, when he's anointed king over Israel, it's because God says, David is a man after my own heart. Saul wasn't, and David is, and I'm going to look for a man after my own heart. Uh, you know, you see in the scripture David dancing joyously before the ark when he was bringing the ark into Jerusalem. Uh, and then we also see David committing adultery with Bathsheba. And not only committing adultery, but covering it up by having Uriah murdered in battle. Uh, we see David, who is so concerned about the glory of God and that the ark was in a tent that he wanted to build God a house. and He wanted to build God a beautiful house, so he collects all this gold and he collects all this stuff so that he could build God a house. And then we see David, who never disciplined his children, never disciplined his sons particularly, and that came back to cause a civil war and plunge the kingdom into chaos. Um, you know, David showed great faith and courage when he, when he faced Goliath. And then later on as king, we see David taking a census of his army to see uh, how big of an army he had and how impressive that was. So there's all these contrasts. And when we look at David, what do we learn? What can we learn from David's life? Uh, there are lots of lessons we could learn from David's life, and that's probably, we could probably spend, I don't know, six months, a year just studying the life of David. Uh, but I think one of the main lessons that we learn from David's life is really not about David at all. It's really about God. And what we learn by looking at David's life is we learn something about God's covenant love for people. Uh, you know, in spite of all the horrific mistakes that David made, God never removed his love from David. Okay? And in fact, in 1 Kings 11, um, Solomon has sinned. He's married all these foreign wives, and they've led him into idolatry. And so there are uh, Asherah poles, and there are temple prostitutes, and, and there are chariots reserved for the, uh, the sun gods, and, and just all these things. And so... God determines that he is going to take the kingdom of Israel from Solomon. And so he sends the prophet Ahijah to Jeroboam, and he says, I've determined to do this. I'm going to take the kingdom. I'm going to strip the kingdom from Solomon. But I'm not going to do it in his lifetime. And the reason I'm not is because of my love for my servant David. Okay, so when, when God puts his covenant love on somebody... God never relents from that covenant love because it's based on God's promises and not on what the person brings to it. Um, and that should, that should be comforting to us. Okay, I hope it's comforting to us because we're like David where we mess up a hundred times a day and we can get on this performance treadmill. Uh, you know, if you're like me, when, when I'm having consistent quiet times, when I'm leading my family well, when I'm loving them, when I'm going out of my way to share the gospel with people, it's easy to say, well, you know, God loves me. God's, God's pleased with me. 
and, and the opposite is true, right? When, I, when I'm running around the house and I'm this ogre and I'm grumpy and, and people don't know what to say around me and I'm, I'm actually running the other way when I have opportunities to witness, when I haven't been in the scripture or haven't been in praying, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, God's not too pleased with me. I don't, I'm not sure that God loves me, right? We, we're so focused on performance in our lives because that's how we get validation that we make that the barometer for our relationship with God. Okay? And that is totally the opposite of what Scripture teaches us. Um, let's look at Romans 5, uh, 7 and 8 real quick. Okay, for while we were still weak, this is verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that, we were wa- in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, it doesn't matter how many times we mess up. Okay, While we were still in rebellion, while we were still thumbing our nose at God, while we were still enemies of God, God loved us. He set his covenant love on us. And he chose us. Okay, so that should be a great encouragement. And Paul's going to follow that up in Romans chapter 8 and 38 and 39. He's going to say, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not famine, not sword, not disease, not principalities, not powers. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And when we look at the life of David, there's lots of things we can learn from David, but what we really learn is that no matter if you're in the body of Christ, no matter what you've done, God loves you. And God is for you. He's after your good. And so that should bring us great comfort. And we should take uh, comfort and be glad in that. Okay, I want to switch gears. It's kind of an abrupt shift, so I apologize. Um, And we're going to look at three different men. Uh, They've all lived in different ages of the church. And the first one I know you're going to know right off the bat. As soon as I put this picture up, you're going to be like, yep, that's the guy I was thinking about. Right? Yeah, Athanasius. Okay? One of the great heroes of the faith. Who knew before this who Athanasius was? Nobody? David. I would expect David to know. Okay. Um, Good-looking guy. And he with the the beard and and the robes. Okay, so Athanasius was uh, bishop of Alexandria, Egypt. He was born in, this says 296, but um, some other thing I found said he was born in 298, and he became the bishop of Alexandria in 328 when he was 30 years old. And he served in that post off and on for the next 45 years. And I say off and on because Athanasius was actually exiled five different times for a total of 17 years. So out of that 45 years that he served in Alexandria, he kept getting exiled. So he would make the emperor angry. The emperor would depose him. Uh, There would be a new emperor, and that emperor would restore him, and he'd anger somebody else, and they'd get rid of him, and then bring him back. And and on and on he did that. Athanasius is a saint of the Roman Catholic Church. And what's interesting about him is, as far as I could tell, he is the only saint 
that has no miracles attested to him. And so he was canonized. Usually the Roman Catholics, they canonize someone based on miracles, and there's a certain number of miracles that you have to have to be canonized. Well, Athanasius wasn't like that. He was canonized strictly based on his godly character. And this is what Archibald Robinson, uh, kind of his biographer, if that's what you can call it, this is what he had to say about Athanasius's life and character. In the whole of our minute knowledge of his life, there is a total lack of self-interest. He's talking about self-interest on Athanasius's part. The glory of God and the welfare of the church absorbed him fully at all times. The emperors recognized him as a political force of the first order, but on no occasion does he yield to the temptation of using the arm of flesh. Almost unconscious of his own power, his humility is the more real for never being conspicuously paraded. Courage, self-sacrifice, steadiness of purpose, versatility and resourcefulness, wit of ready sympathy, were all harmonized by deep reverence and the discipline of a single-minded lover of Christ. Now, Athanasius is important to church history mainly because of his lifelong fight against the heresy of Arianism. And Arianism is the belief that Christ had a beginning, that he is a created creature, that he is not eternal, and that he is not the same substance of God. Um, And so that is totally contrary to what the scripture teaches and what we believe, but it was a heresy that came out of Libya, and it's named after a guy named Arius. He was a priest in Libya, and he was teaching this. And so Athanasius was a deacon at the time that this heresy started, and Alexander was actually the bishop of Alexandria at the time. And they really fought against this idea because Athanasius knew uh, rightly that salvation depended on God being, or Christ being of the same substance as God. depended on him being fully human and fully divine. And so what this was a fight about, this wasn't a fight about semantics, this was a fight about the gospel. And so they fought against it, and they had uh, Arius declared a heretic, and his views were officially declared uh, heresy. Well, the damage had already been done because this, like most heresies do, had already spread to other parts of the empire. And so you have, um, you have Alexander in Alexandria, and he and Athanasius are fighting against this. But you have these other bishops in different parts of the empire, and they're buying into this heresy. And so it had spread. So you have all these big, important ecclesiastical people fighting, and it got to the point where it got the attention of the emperor Constantine. And so Constantine was worried because he had all these important people fighting, and he was worried that we're going we're gonna to cause a civil war here if we don't calm this thing down, if we don't figure this out, because I've got all my bishops that are fighting about it. So in 325, he convened a council in Nicaea. Uh, and I hope that that is a familiar uh, term to everybody, right? Nicaea from... Nicaea, we get the Nicene Creed. Uh, The council lasted from May until August. 318 bishops were invited, and other people as well. Athanasius was there. Arius was there. They called him to defend his views. And these guys kind of got in there, and it it was maybe like a first century version of mixed martial arts. Okay, 
in, on an ecclesiastical version. So they got in there, they mixed it up, they got a bunch of bishops fighting over the deity of Christ, and it resulted in a document that with, uh, with very little revision, we still hold as Christian orthodoxy today, the Nicene Creed. Hopefully you've recited it and you know it. Okay, so fascinating story, but what, is, what does that tell us? What, what do we learn from Athanasius? Uh, most of us are not faced with a, a heresy of that type. Uh, we're not bishops. We're not in a position to influence empires and things. But listen, guys, the church is under assault and orthodoxy is under assault in our day and age. Okay, so, so Mike, is it November you're going to ETS? Okay, so Mike belongs to an organization called the Evangelical Theological Society. And it's uh, academics and lay people, and they, and they gather and they talk about doctrine. But there are people in that society at, teaching at seminaries Okay, who would affirm, correct me, Mike, if I'm wrong, who would affirm that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are not literal, that they're allegory. Okay, guys, think about what the first 11 chapters, what we base things on. That's where we get what it means to be male and female. That's where we get marriage. That's where we get, were we created by special creation? Were we apes that God breathed something into? There's a lot writing on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Okay? And so, we're faced with those types of issues. In our own spheres of influence, in our own areas, there are challenges to the church. And, and I don't want to be a prophet because prophets can be wrong. You know, when Athanasius was, was fighting against the heresy, there were, people look back and, and there was a term that they used for that, and it's Athanasius contra mundum. Okay, Athanasius against the world. And that's what it seemed like to him sometimes. Because the emperor uh, was against him sometimes. The, the other ecclesiastical authorities were against him sometimes. Look, we're facing some of those same things today, right? Look at what's happening in North Carolina. Look at the, and the pressure is only going to get worse for us to abandon orthodoxy. The, the group that wants to be orthodox is going to get smaller and smaller as we go on. All right? And what we learn from Athanasius is that Athanasius stood firm. He wasn't going to give up. He knew what God's word said, he, and he stood on that, whatever the cost. And so that's the lesson that we can learn. We need to be like that wherever our spheres of influence are. All right, we are going to fast forward, get in our little time machine. Okay, we're going to fast forward 1,400 years, and we're going to go from Africa to England. And there's a young man by the name of William Wilberforce who is fighting to uh, abolish the slave trade and slavery from Great Britain. Uh, Wilberforce was born in 1759. He was born to a wealthy family, an aristocratic family, and he spent his early years gambling. Uh, I think it was whist that they played. I guess you can gamble on whist, kind of like bridge. I'm not exactly sure what it is. Anyway, he spent his, his early formative years gambling and engaging in drinking and, and kinds of debauchery. Um, in 1780, he decided at the age of 21 that he wanted to be part of, the, he wanted to be part of Parliament, and he was going to run for the House of Commons. So he spent 8,000 pounds 
of his dad's money, which is the equivalent of a million dollars in today's dollars, and to run the race. And he won. Uh, he won to represent his home district of Hull. And so in 1784, you guys didn't know there was going to be a history test, right, with all these dates. Um, okay, 1784, William Wilberforce becomes a Christian, and his life and trajectory just changed dramatically. He was actually going to leave the church, or leave, the, leave Parliament, and serve the church. And he had a, he had a meeting. Uh, he had been acquainted with John Owen previously, John Owen had a, had a part in leading him to Christ. And he had a meeting with John Owen. And hopefully that name is familiar to you as well, right? John Owen was a former slave ship captain who came to faith, uh, repented of his great sin, and wrote one of the greatest hymns ever, uh, okay, Amazing Grace. And he had a meeting with Owen, and Owen convinced him to stay in Parliament. And he said, no, I think, I think you can do the most good. I think God placed you in this area um, to do that. Uh, you can serve the greater good and you can serve God best in Parliament. And so he did. And in 1787, he introduced his first bill to outlaw the slave trade. Okay? And it would be another 20 years before that actually happened. He'd introduce, if you've seen the movie, has, has, who's seen the movie? Okay. It's a great movie. Um, you know, and he kept introducing the bill, and he kept introducing the bill, and it kept getting shot down, and kept introducing it. And so 20 years before Britain actually outlawed the slave trade, okay? But slavery was still in place in Britain, and it would be another 26 years before slavery was outlawed. And in 1833, uh, three days before Wilberforce died, Parliament finally passed the law that would outlaw slavery, not only in Britain proper, but in all of the British colonies as well. Okay. Um, okay. Good. So what can we learn from William Wilberforce? Well, there's a couple of lessons that we can learn from William Wilberforce. And the first is uh, that there is really not a divide between secular and sacred work. Okay. So we tend, or at least I do, we tend to compartmentalize things. So this is what I do for my job, this is what I do to earn a living, and this is what I do for the church. Well, Wilberforce understood that there's no, there's no distinction between those two. Um, you, may, you may do something to earn a paycheck, but you're still serving Christ while you're earning that paycheck. Uh, Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work heartily as unto the Lord and not as unto men. Okay, so when you go to your job, if you're a believer, you're a Christian, you're bringing the presence of Christ into that job. You're bringing, whatever you do, if you're, if you're at home, homeschooling, if you are working, if you're volunteering, wherever you are as a Christian, you're bringing the aroma of Christ and the presence of Christ into that. And, and Wilberforce understood that. He was involved in societies. He was involved in societies to promote morals. Uh, he was one of the early proponents of the, uh, I forget what they call it, but it would be the equivalent of our ASPCA, right? So the Association for the Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Whatever the British version of that, he was, he was part of that. Okay, and he was involved in all of those things because he believed that society was promoting things that were offensive to God. 
All right, so he wanted to abolish the slave trade primarily because he believed that chattel slavery, as it was practiced, was offensive to God. And so he wanted to work and put his energy towards correcting those things that offended God. And, and we can be the same way, right? We can work for the common good uh, because there are things in our culture and things in our world that offend God. Okay? And the second thing that we learn from Wilberforce is really just the value of the virtue of perseverance. Okay? So he worked for 46 years on, on one issue, uh, to abolish slavery. And he kept pushing and he kept pushing and he kept pushing until it was done. Um, you know, we look at our culture and what's going on in our culture, and it seems like it's happened overnight, right? It seems like uh, we went to bed and, and we woke up and the culture has just gone crazy. The reality is, guys, that it didn't, it didn't happen overnight. It, it's been a long time coming. We just haven't seen it, all right? So we can have gay marriage, and we can celebrate that, because we have decades of no-fault divorce. And we have decades of not taking inside and outside the church our marriage vows seriously. Okay? A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the rise of the nuns, those that are uh, not religiously affiliated. They number 25% of the population. That didn't happen overnight. That happened over decades and decades of neglect in churches by neglecting doctrine, by neglecting discipling, and by neglecting discipline. Okay? That, that wasn't an overnight occurrence. This has been coming on for a long time. And just like they didn't happen overnight, they're not going to be fixed overnight. As Americans, we want things now. We want things fixed. If we, if we elect this person, it'll fix it. If we do this, it'll fix it. If we, we pass this law, it'll fix it. It's just not going to happen now. Listen, if, if the Lord tarries for 10, 20, 50, 100 years, whatever that is, then that's how long we and that's how long our children and our heirs are going to have to work to fix this thing. Um, you know, William Wilberforce, he affected change on, an, uh, on a national scale. Uh, and actually, in the colonies, it was, it was bigger than that. And, and none of us have that kind of influence, right? I don't. I don't think anybody here does. But what would, what would our church look like? What would our neighborhood look like? What would our city look like if we followed Wilberforce's example? If, if we put our hands to the wheel and if we got involved, if we were informed citizens who held elected officials accountable, if we served in organizations that are serving the least the needy, if we, we got involved in our church and we got involved in our neighbors, who knows what God would do. And if we did it for the long haul, not expecting. You know, sometimes it's thankless work, right? Wilberforce had to wait 46 years. Sometimes there's not an immediate payoff for the investments that we make. But if we kept at it, who knows what God would do. All right. Now we're moving east. We're going to China. And we're going to jump a couple of hundred years. And we are in Tianjin, China. And uh, there's a missionary couple, uh, James and Mary Liddell. And they just had a baby boy. 
named Eric. All right? All right, just a quick poll. When I said Eric Liddell, who had the soundtrack running through their head? Right? So it's not just me. It's good. I'm glad. All right? So you think of that, uh, and that, that music runs through your head. All right? A lot of what we know is, is from the movie. Again, it was a good movie. But Eric Liddell's life was so much better than the movie. Okay? Um, just a little bit of background. He was born in 1902. When he reached school age, he was sent to Scotland to a boarding school, which was pretty common for missionaries. Um, he only got to go back to see his parents on vacations or to communicate with them through letters. In 1921, he transferred to the University of Edinburgh, um, where he actually played rugby and ran track. And 100 meters was his specialty because he was pretty fast. Uh, 1924, he made the British Olympic team, and he was going to run the 100 meters in, uh, for the British team. However, there was a problem, because those meets were on a Sunday, and Liddell refused to run on a Sunday. That was the Sabbath. He believed that you keep the Sabbath holy, and he was not going to run on, on the Sabbath. And he just got a lot of criticism. People ridiculed him for that. Uh, people said, this is your best event, you're stupid, why are you doing this? Just run, just run. What's the big deal? And he refused. He wasn't going to do it. So he gave up his spot to a teammate, and he was going to run the 400 meters instead. And the 400 meters was not his race. It was a longer race. It didn't fit his running style. And, but he was, he was going to honor God. And whatever happened, he was just going to run. Uh, well, the rest, as they say, is history, right? Because if you uh, know it, not only did he win gold in the 400 meters, but he set a world record while doing it. Okay, so he ran the 400 meters in 47.6 seconds. That's fast, guys. That is really fast, okay? And this is, this is what I love. I love this is what he said about uh, his strategy and his success. He said, the secret of my success over the 400 meters is that I ran the first 200 meters as fast as I could. Then for the second 200 meters, with God's help, I ran faster. Okay? Yeah, so that's great. He ran as fast as he could. Then when he got to the end of his strength, with God's help, he ran the rest of it faster. You know, this was before the day and age when... Olympic athletes or athletes in general got multi-million dollar contracts. And so uh, millions weren't awaiting him. Ooh, I just unplugged something. I don't know what that is. Um, millions weren't waiting him, but he could have gone back to Scotland. He was a national hero. Everybody loved him. All the ridicule that he had gotten for not running the, the 100 meters was turned around, and, and he's this great guy. And actually, China claims him as well as their first Olympian because he was born there. And so he could have gone back to Scotland. He could have lived a comfortable life. He could have traded in his celebrity. Uh, he was a Christian. He could have done good things with his celebrity, right? Liddell wasn't having it. That's not what he wanted to do. Uh, he had a heart to see the people of China hear the gospel. And so in 1925, under the auspices of the London Missionary Society, um, he left what could have been comfort and ease and a nice life, and, and he went to China to minister and to share the gospel. 
He ministered there for about a decade. Um, he married, had two daughters, and then his life changed again in 1937. The Japanese invaded China. And if you're familiar at all with history, that was just a brutal invasion. Just some horribly unspeakable things had happened. And they made the decision that they were going to stay there. They were going to stay and protect the flock that they had gathered and the people and, and minister to the Chinese. And in 1941, uh, the Japanese were getting closer. And so they moved from where they were at, they moved inland to a rural area. And we don't, we don't get a sense of how big China is, right? So China is just this vast, vast thing. And so uh, Liddell was thinking, well, we'll move inland and the Japanese will never get to that part of the country. And so they won't. We'll be fine. Move to another mission settlement. In 1943, however, uh, the Japanese were again closing in. And so he made the decision to send his wife, who was pregnant with their third child, out of the country so that they could escape. And he made the decision to stay there. He, was, he, couldn't, he couldn't leave the believers that he was working, working in. Uh, he was captured and he was uh, interned in a concentration camp. And in February of 1945, he died of a brain tumor, uh, approximately five months before China was liberated. Um, after the war, stories came out about the concentration camp and it just... Amazing stories over and over about his character, his love for God, his love for people, how he would encourage people. Uh, one of the people that wrote a little biography afterwards says, N I've been in the presence of a living saint. And that's just the kind of man that he was. And so there's lots of, again, lots of things that we can learn about Eric Liddell. But I think, for me, his life was summed up by Matthew 16, 19 through 20. Um, and I'm just going to read it for you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, and that was really... That was really what motivated him. He, he wanted to hear, he wanted the Chinese to hear the gospel. And so he was willing to leave everything that he could have had in Scotland, give all that up. You know, most of us, we're not going to leave everything and go on the mission field. Um, maybe some of us are, I don't know. But every day, we have a choice about how and where we're going to store up treasure. Okay, we've all been given a certain amount of time and energy and money to use in this life. And we all face a choice every day about how we're going to use it. And you know, and a lot of times, I think in our culture, in our lives, uh, time is a more precious commodity sometimes than money is. Not, not that money isn't important, but I think time, it's because of the fast-paced nature of our world, time becomes more important. Um, you know, are we going to spend our time and our money on things that provide comfort? Or are we going to spend our time and our money on investing in people, investing in things that are going to have eternal value? You know, the, the, the house or the TV or whatever, all that's going to burn up. 
one day all that's going to be gone. Uh, but the people that you invest in, uh, whether that's family or neighbors, that's eternal. That's going to last. And just like Eric Liddell, that's where we should be. We should be putting our time and our energy. Okay, uh, wrapping it up. So I'm at the 11 mile point, and I am just dog tired, and I'm I'm upset, and just why am I doing this? And then all of a sudden, I see something. Can you guess what it is? I see the finish line. Yeah. I could see the finish line over the bridge, right? And so my pace quickens a little bit. Um, I got this little burst of energy because what I had trained for and what I was looking forward to, I could see it. I could see where I was going. I could see where I was going to end up. And I wanted to hurry up and get there. Okay? And the second part of Hebrews 12 uh, tells us that... uh, we can run the race, and these people ran the race because they were focused on Christ. They were focused on Jesus. Okay, not only is he the reason we're in the race and the reason we're running, but he is the object of the race, the object that we're running towards. And so really, just like these people that we've looked at today, what we need to do is we need to keep our eyes focused. We need to keep our eyes focused on the one who bought us, the one who loves us. Okay, all this will become noise and whatever's going on in the culture and all that. We keep our eyes focused on Christ. And, and as we do that, we'll be able to run our race well and with endurance. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you uh, for your great, great love for us. Uh, thank you, dear God, that uh, you have uh, purchased us, that you've set your love on us, dear God. Uh, Thank you that you give us the strength and the energy to run the race. Thank you, dear God, that you have provided in your word um, and in other places examples uh, for us to follow. Uh, Thank you, dear God, that you've given us Jesus, who is uh, the one that we can follow, who's perfect. And uh, just pray, dear God, that as we uh, we worship you in song, as we take the Lord's Supper, dear God, uh, that we would just keep our eyes and our hearts focused on him. Amen.